Hi. 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 Quite a bit of trouble covering nine verses the week before last. We're going to shoot for three tonight. John 2, 23 to 25. It's just a really short interlude between Jesus cleansing the temple and the story of Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. Unfortunately, and inexplicably to me, a lot of preachers have just sort of skipped right over these three verses as they preach through John. Um, but when I first read it, it's it stuck out. It's really struck me as being different and kind of odd. You've got story, story, these three verses, story, 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 and then in these three verses, John just sort of pauses the the narrative flow, the storyline, and he speaks to us as the narrator of the book. In other literature, you know, when you read books you're reading a drama or something, when when the dialogue stops and everything stops and the narrator speaks to you himself, it's usually a very important indication. Um, and not only is the narrator helping us understand something here, but, but what he's doing is actually, very uniquely, he gives us a glimpse into what Jesus was thinking. He, t- he gives us a glimpse into the heart and mind of Jesus from Jesus' perspective. Now that makes this really unique. John 2.23. It makes me sit back and say, whatever this is about, it's important. So, now that we can hear, <laughs> let's, uh, let's go to the text with the heart and attitude of, this is, this is very significant. Um, Jesus is sort of opened up before us here in terms of his heart and mind. So, we'll read the text and we'll pray. Let's stand together. John 2.23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The reading of God's word. Let's let's pray. Father, it's it's the time of week now where again we, we just we get together together to hear from you and, and so this is a special time for us. It it becomes routine, it becomes just something that we do on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings or Monday nights, but Lord make this a special occasion in our hearts in terms of our priorities, in terms of our interests, in terms of our alertness. We've all had long days and, and can tune out and just get through this next hour, but by your grace, Lord, just give us attentiveness and help us to, uh, to, to understand your word here, to put the pieces together and, and, and see who you are, see what John is telling us about you, what you are telling us about yourself through John. And, uh, Lord, give us that, that focus, help me to rightly preach your word, and just be with us to help us love Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. So first I want to make a statement that's going to come into play a few times tonight. Um, When you're reading, especially the New Testament, the whole Bible, but particularly the New Testament, you have to always remind yourself that the chapter divisions in the New Testament are arbitrary. right? The the chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, those are completely arbitrary. 
I say New Testament because that's not true for all of the Old Testament, particularly Psalms, maybe Proverbs too, um, and a few others. But, but for the rest of the Old Testament and for all of the New Testament, um, the, the chapter divisions are very late additions. Very late as in perhaps around or as late as 1200 A.D. So they, they might have used the New Testament, read the New Testament, studied for, for over half the time since Jesus ascended into heaven without any chapter division. So these aren't inspired by God. They're not given by God. And we don't want to read them as if they were. Although it's really hard in your daily devotions and things like that. They're for reference, but it's really, you just read chapter 1 and stop. You read chapter 2 and stop, you know. Or you study a passage, and if it's the end of chapter 2, you just stop there and don't worry about what comes after it. But that's not how it was written. Um, the biggest influence on where they put chapters was length. It was they wanted to try to keep each chapter to around a page of hand of handwritten, you know, scrolls or a codex. So it's for reference. It's about a page. Don't take it any farther than that. And this is this is one of the cases of an unfortunate chapter division. These three verses they go with what came before it because it says this is happening during the Passover feast there in verse 23 while he's in Jerusalem when he's at Jerusalem the Passover feast which is what that's when the temple cleansing just happened in the previous story so it goes with that but it's really even more significantly an introduction to the story of Nicodemus okay the belief of the people in Jesus in verse 23 24 and 25 is the first example we have of that is Nicodemus so this is in my mind, if I could rearrange the chapters, I would put chapter 3 just before verse 23 of chapter 2, if that doesn't confuse you. <laughs> so do your best. All I'm really saying is do your best to ignore chapter 3. I give you permission tonight. Just take your pen and scratch it out. You're not doing anything unholy. Um, that will make you feel better. So, All right, to the text. Uh, we already pointed out the time frame here. This is around, during, after the time that Jesus is in Jerusalem for, to celebrate the feast. So this is sort of John's narrative comment about that time, temple cleansing and afterwards, that, that Jesus spent in Jerusalem. Verse 23 says, quote, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, that's very important. They believed in him when they saw the signs. Now, that's in parentheses, that's a reminder told you this several times, but it's a reminder that we, we simply do not have even half of the things Jesus did recorded in Scripture. Right? Because we're not told of any signs that he did while he's in Jerusalem. But the Bible says there were miraculous signs. Jesus cleansed the temple. That wasn't a miracle. He was just angry and drove them out. Um, so we don't have half of it. But apparently he's doing lots of miraculous signs at this time. And these signs were effective to convince people Jesus really is the Messiah. Okay? They believed in his name. I'm going to do some air quotes tonight often. <laughs> they believed in his name. They were convinced by the miracles. But, verse 24 says, they believed in his name. But, Jesus on his part, or Jesus himself, did not entrust himself to them. Now, the e- I don't know what your translation says. The ESV does a good job, but... but no matter how you translate this, you're probably going to miss something important. Keep your eyes in your text. There are, there are two main verbs in these three sentences. Two main verbs. Um, the end of verse 23, they believed in his name. That's the first 
That's the first verb. They believed. And the second is verse 24. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. So believe and entrust are the two main verbs here. Right? Yes, Ryan. You're right. So exciting. Verbs. Believe and entrust are the same verb. In Greek, it's the exact same word. Okay, you kind of missed that here. Believe and entrust don't sound the same, but they are. They're both pistuo, which is just the normal Greek verb for believe. So what the text says is the people pistuoed Jesus, but Jesus did not pistuo them. Okay, it's a very clear wordplay on John's part. Right? They pistuoed him, but not the other way around. I, I personally always think that trust is a little bit better of an English translation for pistuo than believe is. Um, believe to us is so intellectual, it's just heady. But, but the, the real biblical sense of the word is more than just intellectual. You know, we say things like, I believe it's going to rain today. Which just means, I think it might rain. I don't have any emotional attachment to that. I don't have any trust in that. It just looks like, yeah, it might rain. I sort of believe that. That's not believe in the sense, in the biblical sense. It's, it's also trust, right? And that's probably the most important part of it. Because to trust something, you also have to, you have to intellectually believe it. So, so trust is pretty encompassing. Let's try rereading this with trust. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not trust them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Okay. At the big overarching level, this is John's first attempt to help us understand the rest of the story before it unfolds. If you're going to follow along with the rest of the story, you're going to see lots and lots and lots of people believing in Jesus. Believing in his name. Tons of people are going to believe in Jesus throughout the rest of this gospel. And yet in John chapter 6, many of these people are going to leave him. They're going to walk away. He's teaching, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they just leave. And of course, in the hour of his temptation in the garden, at this climactic hour when he's standing before Pontius Pilate, he's standing there alone. Where's all the thousands of people that believed in him and believed in his name? How is that possible when later on in the New Testament canon we're taught that those who believe in Jesus are guarded by Him and kept from ever falling away? So, so people believe, but they're gone. They don't trust Him. So John's trying to warn us about this, what's really going on before it happens. You see, yes, many, many people believed in Him, but that doesn't mean He necessarily believed in them. Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them. Or, as I said, the closest word here is probably trust. And when John says the people believed in his name, he's saying they trusted that Jesus was the Messiah. They trusted that he was called by God and appointed to this task. And they trusted that he would fulfill that role and live up to their expectations. But that trust, now hear me, that trust wasn't good enough for Jesus. That's fine. You trust me. I don't trust you. And the reason given by John, there's, there's two reasons, there's two because statements in verses 24 and 25. Two because statements, your nose in your text. Number one, he didn't trust them because he knows everyone, verse 24. And number two, verse 25, because he knows what's in everyone. And therefore, doesn't need you to tell him about it. Doesn't need me to tell him about it, right? So we're going to think about those two things for a minute. 
Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knows everyone and he knows what's in everyone. Alright. Number one, Jesus knows everyone. I know this is Sunday School 101 here, but that is an astounding statement. (laughs) There are just under 7 billion people on the planet today. There's a website you can live, you know, I'm sure it's a calculator, but sort of estimate how many people right now, and it adds, and it's just under 7 billion. How many people do you think you know out of 7 billion? Give me a shot in the dark. How many people do you think you know? Nothing. Two? A hundred? No, a couple hundred. A couple hundred, yeah. Um, I think it depends on what you mean by know, obviously. Uh, how many things you have to know about a person to say that you really know them. But let's just take a superficial, I know your name, I know your parents, I know where you lived and grew up, and a few of your circumstances. I, I have probably around a few hundred, like, like Frida said. If you've ever, I've never heard of this before, Dunbar's number. Anybody ever heard of that? Dunbar's number. It's a scientific study about the maximum number of relationships you can maintain at any given moment throughout your life. So, like, here's one person. Dunbar's number is about how many people can they, the maximum they can maintain relationships with as they move throughout their life. And people drop out and new people come in as you go. But the average Dunbar number, which is the max, the average max is 150. 150. So, on average, the most, we, the most people that we can relate to at any given moment, any given month in our life is about 150 people. And I feel like that's high, I'm, probably because I'm bad at maintaining formal relationships. But the world has 7 billion people in it at this moment. And that means at best, you know I like these little statistics and calculations, at best that means I have some mediocre knowledge of 0.0000002% of the people living on the planet Earth right now. But Jesus knows them all, doesn't he? And amazingly, he knows all 7 billion a billion times better than I know the 150. Of course, that's just the people who are alive today. Jesus doesn't know the people who are alive today only. Of course, he knows and has known and will know every human being ever even conceived, born, unborn, alike, which is a wonderful thought. It's a hard number to calculate. It's, it's a, we have no idea how many people were conceived. It's in the hundreds of trillions of people, hundreds of trillions of people. We know at a superficial, mediocre, somewhat pathetic level, really, about 150. Jesus, hundreds of trillions. Plus the angels, the dogs, the cats, the chickens, the cows, and the stars in the distant galaxies. He knows everyone. So again, the purpose of John's gospel is to show us the glory of Jesus, to paint it for us and put it on display. Jesus, verse 24, on his part, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew everyone, John says. Just stop and say thank you. That's awesome. 120, hundreds of trillions of millions of, of all of them. I don't think I would have liked most things that, that this writer said. Uh, don't, don't get scared when I say this name, Dennis. But J.B. Phillips has a book that I've only, I have it on my shelf. I've only ever read the title of the book. Okay? I don't think I would like it if I read it. But the title of the book is Your God is Too Small. I like that. Uh, it's always stuck with me. Amen. Our God is too small in our brains. Right? The God that we worship is smaller than the God of the Bible. Guaranteed for everybody in this room. He's bigger than we've imagined, right? Amen? He's bigger than we've imagined. We walk around pretending like Jesus doesn't know. 
You know, he doesn't know what we just said. He doesn't know what we just did. He doesn't know what we're feeling right now. He doesn't know what we'd like to do. He doesn't know what's in those dark recesses of our heart. No, he, he knows everyone. Everyone. We need to expand our view of Jesus. That's the first because. There's a second because clause here. He didn't entrust himself because he knows everyone, number one. But the second thing um, is because he knows what's in everyone and therefore doesn't need us to tell him about it. i got to say, I read that and my first thought, which is almost funny, is that if Jesus had been like us, which he's not and wasn't, but if he had been like us, he would have been really, really annoying to hang out with. Just imagine you walk up to Jesus and say, hey, I'm Ryan. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I went to, yeah, I know where you went to school, Ryan. Well, did you know that? Yeah, I, I knew that too, Ryan. <laughs> I'm not quite 30 years old, and I've already forgotten the names of my second grade teacher and my third grade teacher, for that matter, much less where they lived, where they grew up. And, he, and, and Jesus knows that times 120 trillion But beyond that, this text says, he searches and is familiar with not just the details of their life and our life, but but he knows what was in their heart the moment they were born. He knows that. Like that first movement of their heart, which was born in sin, he knows it. When they cried because they were hungry on day two of their life at 11.17 a.m., we don't even remember that. He knows it all. When they laughed because their daddy made a joke and they were two and they were driving to the gas station to get candy or something. Or when, when you were three and you were left alone in the nursery and you were crying. He knows that intimately. The, 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 the passions going on in your heart. And when you first waited at the bus stop on your first day of school, what it felt like. He, he knows what you ate for every single dinner of your life and why you ate it and how you processed it. I mean, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. The Bible says he knows the hairs on our head in Luke 12, 7, which is, I love that, because that's such a useless thing to know. Doesn't that seem completely useless? I don't care. Who, has anybody ever counted? You don't care. It doesn't matter how many hairs are on your head. And that's the whole point. It does, the things that are almost meaningless, yeah, some of you have fewer hairs than others, but the things that are meaningless, it doesn't matter. He knows everything is the point. The hairs on your head, for goodness sake, which the average adult has over 100,000 strands of hair. And he knows the molecular structure of each one. Dennis has four, but most of us have 100,000. And so if he knows the hundred thousands at the molecular structure, how much more does he know the thoughts and intentions of my heart, the things that will send me to hell? All hundreds of trillions of people that were ever conceived, infinitely better than we know, even ourselves. It's an amazing thing. Yes, our God is too small. The real God, the real Jesus, is, is much bigger than our wildest dreams. And it's in that intimate, detailed, perfect knowledge of us that Jesus is able to discern the true nature of our trust in Him at every given moment. There's no deception. There's no, yeah, I believe in you, sure. It's intimately knows exactly how we do and don't trust Him at every second, every heartbeat of our life. And He doesn't need any help, the text says. I do this all the time. There's, because I'm terrible about people and names and things. 
there's somebody in my life that at this point I should know. I'm sure there, I know everybody here, but I'm, I'm sure there are people in our church circle that I don't. But um, there, I should know these people by now, but I'm, I'm, I don't know, I don't remember their names, and I'm too embarrassed to ask because I know that they know that I should know their names. So you just pretend like, hey, how's it going, and just forget about the name part. I distinctly remember having been at Hickory Hill for several years, for a couple of years, even a few years in, and I was told <laughs> that I was supposed to, after the sermon, go to the front of the church and shake hands as people left, you know, say goodbye or hello. And so I'd stand back there. I remember a few times, even a couple of years in, shaking hands with people and saying, oh, I'm Mariah, I'm the pastor here. Is this your first time at Hickory Hill? No, I've been here about 40 times. Thanks for remembering me, though. And I said, oh, well, good to have you this morning. <laughs> you know, what do you say to that? I'm a jerk, I know. And it's times like that, when I see that person approaching, I'll ask somebody next to me that I do know very well. What's that person's name? Who's that? What? Come on, who's that person again? What's their name? Where do they live? What do they do? But not Christ. That's what the, John says. I love how practical this is. It just, he doesn't have a need for that. He doesn't need that. The President of the United States is surrounded by people who say, okay, now this next person in line is the ambassador to such and such, and he's on this panel, and you sent him a basket of flowers. Not Jesus. He, he, he needs no reminders. He won't have helpers on the Day of Judgment. He doesn't have elves. That's not what the angels are. He's not going to say, oh, you, you remember Ryan. You know, he's the one who preached that Wednesday night at Grace Community Church. No need. He knows, even as I'm speaking the words this second, he, he knows, and this is almost a frightening thought, he knows how, to what degree I'm trusting him as I speak. And he knows as you listen. And he'll never forget. Because of that, because he knew without need of reminder or testimony from anyone exactly what kind of trust these people had in him, he didn't entrust himself to them. Okay, that was a long explanation of that. That's why, it's two becauses, that's why he didn't entrust himself to them. Because he could see and knew that their belief was a fickle one. That's a good word. John says they believed when they saw signs. Wow! A miracle! Wow! How did he do that? You know, like when we see the magicians or something. He just cut that woman in half! He must be magic! And that's the sort of trust, you know, they saw and they believed. But Jesus knew. That's the trust these people had. But unfortunately, that's not the belief slash trust that leads to eternal life. That's sort of just marveling from the eyes. That's not the belief that Jesus responds to. And so, I'm going to give you a first principle here. It's the, I think it's the only principle I have, but um, here it is. <laughs> there is a way to believe in Jesus' name without believing in his name. There's a category for that. There's a way to believe in Jesus without believing in Jesus. Or maybe I'll borrow R.C. Sproul's thing. uh, He said, it's really easy to believe in God. It's almost impossible to believe God. It's more profound than I could put it, but yeah, that's right. I believe that. Because they believed in him. They trusted in facts about Jesus. Oh, you just did a sign. That's really cool. That doesn't mean they trusted Him. That He was good. That He was God. That He was there bringing the kingdom. You know, they didn't trust Him. They just trusted in things that He had. They saw that He did. 
Big difference. So again, the principle is, there's a way to believe in Jesus without truly believing in Jesus and being born again. That has so many implications for us, I, I was hard-pressed to know where to start. First of all, so that's the principle, some, some implications. First, I think we need to learn something very important about unregenerate man, about the lost man. There's something in us, in our fallen self, there's something in us, something God knows all too well, something that, something about how our fallen brains and hearts work together that makes us prone to follow our eyes. Something we have to get this tonight. There's something in us, in our fallen nature, that makes us prone to go after what our eyes see. John says Jesus himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows that we are prone to believe what we see. Aren't we? That's what he knew about the people that believed in him during this Passover. They were following him because their eyes told them to. Just think about when you are kids. Hey, Ryan, did you know that monkeys can fly? No, they can't. Somebody's pulling your leg. They can't. I've seen it. I've seen it. Oh, well, then if you've seen it, I guess it must be true. Right? Like that. I've seen it. We see it all the time. You know, I saw it with my own eyes. Well, then it must be true because our eyes are an infallible guide of fact and fiction. That's what we do. We trust our eyes like that, don't we? Seeing is believing, we always say. And if these people were following Jesus because they saw it with their own eyes, they were trusting in their sight, that wasn't it for Jesus. That wasn't good enough. <coughs> for, for a whole bunch of reasons, but not least of which is that if they were following Jesus today because of what they saw, tomorrow Satan could turn around and, the, and show them something completely different. And there they go. They're just being led by their eyes in deceit. If you follow Jesus because of what you've seen, you can just as easily stop following Jesus because of what you'll see tomorrow. We say seeing is believing. The Bible says, uh-uh. Not trusting, anyway. Not trusting. Seeing is not just trusting. We need to be in the business of mistrusting. Is that a word? Mistrusting. Mistrusting our eyes. We should, we should be in the business as redeemed Christians of, of understanding the, the tendency of our fallen hearts to follow our eyes and therefore mistrust them. Because they will lie to us. Second Peter one nineteen. We read that. Just going to read that this morning. In the King James, Peter's talking about uh, Peter's talking about the experience he had on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw Jesus light up like a light bulb or the sun. Like he, we we reflect light. You see me reflecting light right now. I'm not emanating light. If I was, you would be scared. Or I would be nuclear or something like that. But Jesus goes on the mountain and he is producing light as if he were a light bulb. And then a voice comes from the clouds and says, By the way, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. So that is a powerful moment. Oh, by the way, Moses and Elijah are there too. I mean, this is pretty top of the world experience, right? This is sort of like Paul's third heaven experience here. And... But Peter says in First Peter, Second Peter 1, he's saying, hey, we were there. We didn't make this stuff up. We were there. But the King James says, we have a more sure word of prophecy speaking about the Bible. So the point is, that was really cool that I saw Jesus. I saw him light up. But what's even more sure 
is what God has said in his word. That's pretty crazy. That's, that's not how we think. No, he was there. He saw it. That's number one. That's not right. Actually, God's word has supremacy over what Peter saw. Maybe he was sick that day. Maybe he had a pre-psychedelic you know, mushroom on accident or something. I don't know. But it could have been deceived. His eyes could have deceived him. He says, more sure than what I saw is what God says. That's wonderful. We should be in the business of mistrusting our eyes. Whether you're watching a magic show or the Discovery Channel, we understand, we need to understand the tendency of our heart to follow our eyes. You're watching the Discovery Channel and they're feeding you with information. But the tendency of your heart is to go after that. And so remember the warning here that our eyes can deceive us and lead us away from the truth. Let me give you another for instance. Exodus 7.10. You know this story well. Just before the, just before the uh, plagues. So Moses and Aaron, at God's command, went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. His piece of wood is now a snake. Okay, That's pretty amazing. I've never seen that before. And I would say, whoa! That was magic! I just saw it! But then Pharaoh summoned his wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, some people have wrestled with that and said, well, they just made it look like, you know, if you've ever seen that Charlton Heston movie, I think he, they, they, they have him kicking over a basket of snakes and just tricking them. That's not what I read in the Bible here. It says they did the same by their secret arts. And one snake swallows up the other snake. Sounds like they became snakes. They didn't do it by the power of the Spirit, though. They did it by their dark, what, demonic forces. I don't know how they did it. <coughs> but you see, Pharaoh was following his eyes. For, for ten seconds, he probably would have said, Okay, go. Wow. Yahweh is God. But then ten seconds later, they do it by the, their dark arts. And he says, Never mind. These, he's not God. These are gods. Following our eyes. Our eyes are fallible, prone to deceive us. You know, the application is... In your life right now, maybe it looks like to your eyes God's not working. Or it looks like God doesn't care for you. Or it looks like, Psalm 72, that the wicked man is prospering and the righteous man is scorned. But we have a more sure word of prophecy that says otherwise. Yeah, it looks like that, but we mistrust what we see. We're at Ryan's Steakhouse. Not my steakhouse, the restaurant. And we're going down. I always wish, I always loved that when I was a kid, by the way. But, uh, we're going down, you know, we've got our plates, we're going down the, the cattle trough or buffet line, as you call it. And here we come up to the mashed potatoes, the wonderful instant mashed potatoes with the pool of butter on top, you know, because it's been sitting under the heat lamp. And my eyes say, ooh, look at that. Come on now. You want some of that. And I put a little on and say, no, 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 you can do better than that. So I put a little bit more on. And my eyes say, no, no, stop playing around. Put some gravy on there. And I put some gravy on there. And I say, no, put some gravy on the whole plate. You need it on the meat and the taco and everything else. And I say, oh, my heart says, I don't really need that. That's not wise. That's not good for me. And my, my eyes say, yes, you do. This is good. This is good for you. You'll love it. it. Look at it. It looks great. It'll be a wonderful experience. It will make you happy to eat this, Ryan. 
and so I get on the gravy train. Can I get a witness, or is that just me, apparently? See, our eyes are very, very powerful. We want because of our eyes. They're powerful. What happened to Eve? Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you hear what that said? When the woman did what? When the woman saw, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she wanted it, and she took it, and she ate it. She followed her eyes. How about James 1? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's a really great passage. Lured. Have you ever thought about the word lured? When do you use the word lure? When you're fishing. <clears throat> That's what happens. We are lured first, the text says. That's what happens when we're tempted into sin. We're lured. Who gets lured? Well, fish get lured in this fishing enterprise. I'm swimming along, you know, do, 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 and out of the corner of my eye, something shiny. And then you go look at this. I go look at it even closer, and I say, ooh, that looks good. That's a nice, you know, floppy worm there. I want that. And I go, and I'm lured. I get closer, and I jump, and I bite it, and I'm hooked. I'm hooked. Yes, that's us, James says. First we see it, and we say, ooh, that looks good. We see bright, shiny things that we want or we need, and then we bite, and then we sin, and then he says, then we die. Beware, folks. Beware of the power of your eyes. You spend too much time staring at that new bass boat, and pretty soon you're going to bite. Spend too much time looking at that beautiful woman who sits across the aisle from you, and pretty soon you'll bite. Spend too much time watching Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen and pretty soon you'll be bitten. Hook, line, and sinker. So we must, must be in the business of mistrusting them, doubting what we see. I have a very good friend who decided to become roommates with a, uh, with a murderer. Not joking anymore. Uh, he, uh, the, this guy had just gotten out of prison for murder. And my friend was going to seminary, wanted to do this as sort of a ministry, and needed a place to stay, so he moved in with this murderer. Do you think he kept a watchful eye on him and on his things? Do you think he left his valuables laying around or you know, slept on the couch all night long? I think he knew where this guy was at all times of every day. And should we be any less suspicious of our eyes? Jesus says they are the lamp of the body. If they be dark, then the soul is dark. Okay, that's enough. That leads us to another implication for our church. Because of the deceit of our fallen eyes, second thing is, we do not need to be in the business of luring, I'll use that word again, of luring people into believing in Jesus and convincing them to believe in Jesus and doing theatrics and putting on a show and attracting them to Him with anything other than His glory. That's it. The only shiny, attractive lure that we can throw out in the water in front of people's faces is that Jesus is glorious and wonderful and God. That's it. Nothing else works. We put His glory on on display as we preach His Word and obey His Word and, and treasure His Word. That and that alone can be the lure which draws people in. 
I remember, it's been two years ago now, this is going to sound unbelievable unless you've already heard of it, there was a church, a big, big church in Texas, that had a, had a giveaway on Easter Sunday. Okay? Easter Sunday, they put in a paper, they get news coverage, all this. It's a, it's a giveaway to get the unchurched back into church on Easter. And I'm going to read you a direct quote from the Houston, Texas ABC affiliate, because I don't think you'll believe me if I don't quote this. So, begin quote. Corpus Christi, Texas, dash, dash. You've never seen an Easter egg hunt like this before. Bay Area Fellowship, the largest church in Corpus Christi, is giving away flat screen televisions, skateboards, Fender guitars, furniture, and 15 cars. Yes, cars. And it's Easter services this week. And even those who don't win big will walk away with something. The church has gathered donations for 15,000 gift bags, each with around $300 worth of free goods and services. Quote within a quote. We're going to give some stuff away and say, imagine how great heaven's going to be if you feel this excited about a car, said lead pastor Bill Cornelius. It's completely free. All you have to do is receive him, speaking of Jesus. He hopes the prizes will help Bay Area lure, swear, I'm not making this up, he hopes the prizes will help Bay Area lure some people who don't normally go to church or those who have lapsed in their faith, end quote. The problem with that is, well, there's about you know 9,000 problems with that, but one little problem with that is we're fickle. We already said that. We're fickle people. Mark Dever has said, I might have shared this with you actually, what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you win people with miraculous displays of healing, that's all you've won them to, folks. If you win them with comfortable seats and free coffee and donuts, that's all you've won them to. Or lure them with big screen televisions, and good job, you got them to bite. So what? Who cares? They didn't bite. They didn't embrace Jesus. They bought a big screen television. That's it. And that what you won them with, you won them to loving television. That's really hard to do in our society. whoop de do. You know, 10,000 people came to church that Sunday, but so what? Anybody can lure the people of the world with things of the world, right? I think I could guarantee you, it's on tape, if you want me to do it, I will. I think I could guarantee you that I could fill this building up to capacity next Wednesday night, no problem. Fire marshal will come in and shut us down because there's people out in the streets and people can't even get through. All you need to do is each give me $10,000 and I will give $1,000 to everybody who comes to the door next Wednesday night and I'll put it on KRCG. I mean, we will be full, right? Every college student's like, done, you know? <laughs> Sounds good. No. I mean, so what? We lured them with their eyes, and we won them. But we won them to nothing. They bit, but it wasn't Jesus that enticed them. It wasn't Jesus they were buying into. And therefore, the only thing we can win people with is the thing we want to win people to. The only thing we can lure people with is Jesus himself on display in his glory as our treasure. Because that there's nothing left that he will accept and entrust himself to. Right? Okay. Third implication. Um... Because of this 
people, you can believe in Jesus without believing in Jesus. Because of that, third, uh, we need a category of belief in Jesus. This is, this is sort of redundant, I guess, but we need a category of people who believe in Jesus but that do not have eternal life. And believe you can put in air quotes if you want. Right? They believed in Him. They believed in Him. The Bible says it. They pursued Him, but not the other way around. And if Jesus didn't pursue Himself to them, guess what? They ain't going to heaven. At least not yet anyway. I don't know what becomes of them later on. But again, we need that category in our brains. There are people around us today that put their belief in Jesus but are not, do not have the fruit of eternal life. There's a category of people in the world today in Missouri. There's people in your family. You have family members. You have best friends probably or co-workers or at least people that live next door to you who give their consent to Jesus who give their consent to the gospel and are going to hell. Think about Nicodemus. Again, this is, we'll get into more of this next week, but this is why these verses are here. Nicodemus comes and says, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are sent from God because no one can do the signs which you do unless God is with him. It's exactly what these people are saying. When they saw the signs, Nicodemus is one of these people in verses 23. He saw the signs. God is with you. You are a great teacher. You're somebody great. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I think he might be the Messiah. But Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom of God, and you certainly can't enter the kingdom of God because you're not born again. So I have a question for you. When it comes to being born again or born from above, born of the Spirit... Should we take people's word for it? This question has got me into much controversy, unfortunately. Um, I don't have a strong answer to that. I just pose it as a controversial question, really. I don't think there's a yes or no answer to that. But I want to cast some doubt. (laughs) I want to cast some doubt for a few minutes. Should we take people's word for it when it comes to to their rebirth? That's exactly what we do. It's definitely what we do. Have you heard of Barna, the Christian research group? Barna, if you've read a research study about Christians, it's probably done by Barna. They always do most of them. They put out all kinds of statistics a few years back about born-again Christians, and it made news all over the world. Because they did this survey of born-again Christians, and you have to read the footnote. They say, we didn't use the word born-again when we talked to people. To to be in the category of born again, you had to give your consent to Jesus, your belief, intellectual belief in Jesus, and trust that when you die, you're going to heaven, and and say that you're trusting Him as your Savior. So that means you're a born again Christian in the survey. And the whole survey was about how born again Christians in this category are no different than the rest of the world. They're just as racist, they're just as divorced, they're just as adulterous, they're just as hateful. Right? They watch just as much television, just as much pornography. They do all the same things. That was the gist of the survey. Except, perhaps the problem is, those people aren't born again. Right? Just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean you believe in Jesus. There's a, there's a category difference here. They don't overlap completely. But that's the ethos of our churches. We just, just ask people... You a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, great. Come in and sit down here and have a place in our church. Only problem is we just open the gate to a wolf. We just open the lamb's corral to a ravenous wolf, and we set him down next to one-year-old baby lambs, and he's hungry. 
What do you think is going to happen? Unfortunately, I've seen two trends that are particularly strong in this area of central Missouri related to this that really greatly disturb me. One, which I don't see here, is come forward, get baptized, get your name on the membership roster, and you're good to go. You might need a little prodding every once in a while to come to church. If we don't see you, we'll send you a card. But for goodness sake, you're going to heaven. I mean, you profess faith in Jesus in front of all of us, right? The second disturbing trend is, hey, do you know the person who lives over that house? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's James. He's a good guy. Is he a Christian? Yeah, he's a Christian. How do you know? I've seen this plaque above his door that has a vague, misquoted reference from the message about something that might relate to Christianity. Oh, well, in that case, I guess he's a Christian. You know, this, my point there is the assumption. The assumption all over. James is a good, good old boy. I mean, he's li- I, know, I knew his great-grandpa. He, I went to church with him back in the day. Yeah, of course he's a Christian. I mean, he raises his kids. I mean, he's got some things, but, yeah, you know, he's a good guy. So, of course he's a Christian. That's, the cultural, that's cultural Christianity. That's a, dangerous, that's a dangerous assumption. So again, the question is, should we assume that people who confess a Christian worldview and rudimentary belief in Jesus are saved? Should we just give people the benefit of the doubt? Because that's exactly what we do. All the time. Um, you heard somebody you work with once talk about going to church last Sunday, and we said to ourselves... I can cross them off the list of people I need to evangelize now. They're okay. Or, you know, a loved one or a parent or even a child. Well, we raised them in the church. They made a profession of faith 20 years ago. They got baptized. You know, yeah, they don't go to church anymore and it wouldn't hurt them to start going. But when we, boy, if they die, we're going to all pat each other's backs and reassure each other and say, well, at least they're in a better place. But are they? Can we all agree that there surely are people, and we can all agree on this, I'm sure, there surely are people that we have assumed are Christians, but who are really not. Right? There's, those people exist, for sure. We can agree on that. If we had been with Jesus in John chapter 2, if, if he had had a group of central evangelical Protestant Baptists or like with him in John chapter 2, we would have been at the front of the line saying, Woohoo! Jesus, they believe in you, man. They made a, they signed the card. They prayed the prayer. We had 40 people make commitments today after you did that great miracle out there. This is a great day. The angels in heaven are rejoicing. But they were still lost. They're still lost. And we have those people in our lives. So my question is twofold. What good does it do for us to assume Christianity? What good does that do? couple things. It saves us the awkwardness of having to talk about spiritual things. It takes away any guilt that we might have for not talking to people about Jesus that we feel like we should, but they're Christians, so that takes away the guilt from that. You know, we don't have that guilt now. And it means we can assume nice things about them and assume the best. Okay, what harm does it do? What harm does it do? While their souls are currently separated from the Almighty God who made them, they are living every breath in, every breath out as an enemy of God, and living in a way that's contrary to their created purpose and the reason they exist. And we can't gloss over the worst, which is soon and very soon they're going to meet their Maker, 
in which time they'll spend an eternity in hell suffering the fierceness of his eternal wrath and condemnation. The Bible says the worm never dies, the fire is never quenched, which is a terrible, terrible thought. So how many people are in our lives that we are currently assuming the eternal state of their soul based on historical professions, side comments, wall placards, a Bible on the bedstand? How many people are we just taking that for granted? And what's at stake? There is a category. It happens in chapter 2 of the Gospel. happens right away. Lots of people believe, but most of them aren't believing. Let's take that seriously in our lives as well. Here's the end of the point. Jesus is not in the business of taking our word for it. For what? For anything. (laughs) For anything. He's not taking our word for anything. On the day of judgment, we won't stand there and say, yeah, but what you don't understand, Jesus, is that when I did that, I was also... No, 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 no. I get it. I know it. I know everything. There's no arguing. There's no debate. There's no yeah, but. He knows. He knows what's in us. He knows what's in our neighbors. And knowing that, Jesus doesn't take our word for it. Do you believe in me? Oh, good. Well, then come on into heaven. No. We, we, We distrust our eyes and we distrust shallow professions of faith. That was the first part. I have um, a very quick conclusion because I don't want to end on that sort of brow-beating downer of a point. Um, We're going to spend five minutes and be done talking about the glorious, uplifting, comforting part of this text. It's, It's actually implied, which is why I didn't want to spend only five minutes on it. It's just implied, okay, so... I feel like that's what the text was mainly about. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. So what does that mean? Just think about that for a second. In light of what we've already said and going over, he didn't pistuo them, and therefore they weren't redeemed. So flip that around for a second and take the implication of that. What about after the day of Pentecost? What about after the apostles and the early church members truly did pistuo Jesus, truly trusted in him and were born again, what what did Jesus do then? Well then, for them and today for us, Jesus truly does pistuo himself, trust himself to us. That's the implication, right? Their belief was fickle and false. And so he didn't trust himself to them. What about when their belief is real and genuine in the fruit of eternal life? Then he does entrust himself to us and to them. Glory. We we entrust our hope and our belief and our confidence in Jesus. And in return, he entrusts himself to us. Does that mean that Jesus trusts us or believes us? I don't think that's the point. I think the text is saying that to those who really believe in Him, the genuine converts, the gift that Jesus gives them is His very self. So on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were gathered in the upper room, they're praying, they're worshiping God, they're seeking God, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and fills them with power, represented by flames of fire resting over their heads. What's happening is Jesus is depositing the gift of Himself, entrusting it to each of them. So Jessica and I are, uh, you can pray for us because we're currently in the midst of some very heavy family planning and life planning and question answering about the next chapter of our family life. And one of the questions that's come up, which 
we must agree on an answer to is what should happen to our children if something tragic were to happen to both of us? So we're driving home and we get in a car accident. We both pass away. What, what happens? Where do our children go? You guys were all parents or our parents. So I'm sure you've thought about that. Who takes your kids? Now, speaking for us both now, there's, there's no greater treasure that we have in this world than the life of our children. Nothing. And if one of them was, if Corbin or Eden was sick and there was a flower at the farthest point in Asia at the bottom of a volcano, I would not be here. I would be swimming if I had to right now, diving the, to get that, whatever it was. I mean, we, we just adore them. And God willing, we have such high hopes and plans and purposes for their lives. We want to teach them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We, we want to nurture their hearts to love God. We want to train up our children the way they should go so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. We want that with every muscle of fiber in our bodies, but, but we could both die. We could. I mean, is it likely? No. Is it possible? Certainly. It happens. And in that event, who is there in this world that we would entrust the most precious treasure in the created realm that we currently have? As you can imagine, our, our standards are high. Very high. We only want the best. And what makes my heart melt is that when I consider, to me, Jesus has entrusted himself. He's entrusted himself to me. As I would entrust my children to somebody else, he's done that to me. He's given me the gift of himself. I can just picture the scene in heaven. I want to invite you to spiritually daydream with me. Now, this has been a fruitful meditation for me. The angels in heaven are not omniscient, right? They don't know everything. They're created, just like you or I. And since angels are ministering, they're serving spirits of God, there was a day... Maybe, maybe early on, maybe very late, I don't know when it was, but there was a day when an official edict would have gone out telling the angels about God's plan to take on the flesh, to become incarnate, to be born of a virgin, to live among us as a second Adam to fulfill the law, to suffer and die at the hands of lawless men, all so that he could raise three days later, and purchased for himself a group of men and women, a bride, as it were. That was there was a day when that was sort of publicized and announced, maybe in the celestial tribune or maybe on channel seven seven seven. I don't know how it went out. Maybe it was a loudspeakerphone. Maybe God just said it in spiritship. They all knew it, but there there had to be a moment in time because they're created where it was told to them. Jesus is going to go down. Well, the Son is going to go down to earth. He's going to do this. He's going to, he's going to go and suffer and buy with his own blood a people for God's own possession and save them from his own wrath. And you've got to wonder, what were the angels thinking? What were, what were the conversations at the angelic water cooler like the next day after everybody found out what Jesus was getting ready to do? They had to be saying to each other, what kind of people is he going to get? What kind of people is he going to go purchase? I mean, for us created creatures, we give ourselves to people better than us. That's how it works. We go up the ladder, not down. Citizens die in service of their king because they love and honor him. They respect him. Soldiers fight and die for America because they respect and look up to the ideal that is America, the country of America. So they're thinking, they're talking to themselves. So, man, who, 
Who are these people that Jesus is going to die for? Who are these people he's going to go and give his own blood to, to purchase? They must be the greatest kings of the earth. The, 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 the top echelon of citizens. The, the perfect ones. The worthy few. And so how did their jaws, their celestial jaws drop when God's decree was announced? Not the worthy. Not the highly esteemed. Not the wise. Not the perfect, not the glorious ones. First Corinthians one twenty six to twenty nine. No, actually, angels, I've chosen the unwise. You did what? I chose the unnoble. I chose the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised. Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That doesn't make any sense. Beloved, He has given to us. And we know who we are. We know what we are. We know what we are not. Before the the concrete was ever mixed to lay the first pillar of earth's foundation, He decided in time to give us the gift of Himself. As dearly as I love them, a thousand times greater gift than me entrusting my children to another human being, God gave us Himself. He handed Himself to us on a bloody platter and said, Here, take my life. Here, take my righteous clothes. Jesus handed us, He said, Here, clothe yourselves in my righteousness. Here, here's my birthright. Take it. Here's the signet ring on my kingly finger. Take it. Take my Father's good pleasure. Take my Father's love. Take the food from my Father's table. Take my body. Break it. It's yours. Take my blood, spill it, drink it, I give it to you. Take my place. And he entrusted himself to us. God's greatest gift to us is not heaven, John Piper said. God's greatest gift to us is not even righteousness or a clean conscience before him. God's greatest gift to the warm bodies in this room as we breathe is the actual person of Jesus. He has given him to us in every sense of the word. In every way imaginable. Is there a way in which Jesus could have given himself to us but didn't? Is there a way that God could have given Jesus to us but but hasn't? His birthright? His favor? His protection? His love? The clothes off his righteous back? The blood in his veins? He's given himself completely to us. To me. And yet I spurn him. And yet I, I dishonor him. Yet I think so lightly of his name. He has given himself to me in the world's most undeserved trade, and yet I and you, we withhold our full self from him. Beloved, I just want to call you to praise God, honor him, and give him thanks. Jesus entrusts himself to us. What mystery and what love. Alexander means, I get, you might not have heard of this song, he said it really beautifully in 1835. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? For my soul. Let's pray. Father in glory, we are, I am humbled that 
that Jesus would give me a piece of straw from his barn, much less the blood in his veins, in his hands, the holes in his hands, the breath in his lungs, and even more significantly, the favor that he had eternally and gloriously with you before the foundation of the world, that he would entrust that to me and to those in here who are truly believing and trusting in you. God, forgive us for so lightly treating the most precious gift that you have given to us, the gift of your Son. You entrusted him to us and not withheld anything from us. Would you not also with him give us all good things? Of course you would. Help us to love and trust the gift that we've been given this week. Help us to not take lightly, even even thinking the name of Jesus, even pronouncing the name of Jesus. May we speak it with reverence and awe. That What wondrous love is this, that, that you would lay aside your crown for our souls. Amen.